Welcome to the Residents and Fellows Audio Corner Podcast. My name is Lessa Matthews, Professor of Clinical Anesthesiology at Vanderbilt University Medical Center in Nashville, Tennessee. Today we are going to be interviewing Dr. Ugan Reddy on behalf of the Trainee Engagement Committee of the Society of Neurosciences in Anesthesia and Critical Care. He will be sharing his expertise on ICU management of stroke patients. Dr. Reddy is a consultant in neuroanesthesia and neurocritical care at the Uni- National Hospital for Neurology and Neurosurgery, University College London Hospital, NHS Trust. He is the director of the Neurosurgical Intensive Care Unit. And Dr. Reddy trained in anesthesia and intensive care medicine at the Royal Free and University College London Hospitals. He's on the faculty of the UCL Neuroscience Stroke MSc program and a clinical tutor for UCL Medical School. In addition, he's also the neurosurgery section editor of Anesthesia and Intensive Care Medicine. Dr. Reddy's clinical research, research interests include intensive care management of vascular brain injury, non-neurologic complications of brain injury, and anesthesia for skull-based surgery. Thank you, Dr. Reddy, for your time. Today, we are also joined by Dr. Arun George and Dr. Adele Budensky. Dr. Arun George is currently SCA1 resident at Allegheny General Hospital in Pittsburgh. He has been a member of Society of Neuroanesthesia and Critical Care since 2016, and his interests include pharmacology and neuroanesthesia, neurointensive care, and traumatic brain injury. Dr. Adele Budensky is currently a neuroanesthesia fellow at Cleveland Clinic. She completed her residency in Ottawa, Canada, and Adele has been a member of the SNAC since 2017, and her interests include outcomes in brain tumor patients. Welcome, everybody. It is my pleasure to uh, talk to each of you on behalf of SNAC. So, Dr. Reddy, we will start with you. What are the type of patients with stroke who benefit from ICU care? Thank you, Dr. Matthews, and thank you for inviting me and for uh, for accommodating for accommodating me with the time difference. Um, yes, this is really interesting. It's an interesting question, um, and definitely in in my, in my practice, and I'm sure practice everywhere, you see this change in in the, in the sort of case mix that we see with patients or patients with stroke. And as we go to a more interventional approach to managing acute ischemic stroke, uh, you find increasing number of stroke patients being admitted to neurocritical care. And then the indications for admission vary from center to center, depending obviously on the level of care provided at your local stroke unit and you know whether the, uh, the what the protocols are for, for admitting these patients. Some of the common indications, I would say, for, for admitting them will be patients who require intubation and ventilation, uh, and they, those are patients who've had a who've got a decreased level of consciousness, where the classic coma score is less than eight. Patients who need airway protection, whether they've got bulbar uh, dysfunction following the stroke, acute respiratory failure for whatever cause. Uh, and, and then if there's any evidence of brainstem dysfunction following the stroke. Furthermore, we, we also admit patients for optimizing their systemic physiology because we know that impacts on an on, on outcome. Uh, and when I say systemic physiology, I refer to sort of blood pressure control, uh, having sort of effective fluid balance, good glucose control, temperature management in these patients, uh, having an adequate hemoglobin. 
We also will admit patients onto the ICU who have a severe stroke, a much more severe form of stroke, and you know, using the NIST score, if they've got a high NIST score, more than, than 17, or patients who have a large volume MCA infarction, more than 145 centimeter cube is, is the, the figure that's generally quoted. Those patients at higher risk of complications, and they require much more intensive management on the intensive care. We also would have patients there who have, uh, we bring them in to manage the intracranial complications where they've had seizures, they've got, uh, who, who have developed status, or uh, furthermore, they, they've got hemorrhagic transformation following the stroke, or, you know, they're at risk of developing malignant MCA syndrome, or post-decompression, they also get admitted. But I think it's important to state that, if, you know, in addition to the sort of clinical status of the patient, the decision to admit to intensive care has to be based on the likely prognosis of this patient and, um, and, and, if possible, the known wishes of the patient. Correct. That's very important to emphasize, right? Some patients may not desire to have extended care if their outcome is expected to be poor. Could you tell us a little bit about the initial assessment of these patients once they get admitted to ICU? Yeah, so, you know, so typically the Glasgow Coma Scale is, is what's frequently used to assess global uh, neurological status and, and any deterioration is. And that's quite a common measure in, in, in the intensive care unit. However, for these patients, for stroke patients, it's best to use some kind of stroke severity rating scale. I'm sure we all heard of the, uh, the NIS, uh, NIS. NIS scoring system. And uh, that, that quantifies stroke and, and, and it's related more to sort of the impairment and, and it's more objective measure than, you know, using something like the GCS. Right. The 42 point scale uh, it's got 11 items, uh, and each of which scores a specific ability. Uh, I think it's between 0 and 4, and that will give you a much greater measure and assessment of uh, severity and prognosis, and also gives indication, and it's good for serial, serial assessment in patients, either if they're having some kind of intervention or for the sort of prolonged stay on the unit. So these patients, do you usually have some blood pressure goals that you would like to keep them in certain protocol of blood pressure management? It's a topic that's sort of, you know, uh, widely discussed and, and, and very much written about. I, I think through, you know, to digress a little bit, hypertension we all know is a very common finding in patients after they following stroke, and there's more than two-thirds of patients yes. who who had a stroke will have uh, high blood pressure and then, you know, define the thing, is fine as anything above 140. And that could be due to various reasons. I mean, this could be a pre-existing hypertension or they could have had some kind of neuroendocrine response following their stroke. Or it could also be a mark of increasing cranial pressure. What's well documented is the adverse effects of severe hypertension, okay? Because we, we know if you've got, you know, uncontrolled hypertension in these patients, they will present with cardiorespiratory problems, worsening cytotoxic edema, they're at risk of hemorrhagic transformation of the infarcted area. However, the beneficial elements of, of, of the tissue are also related to this elevation in blood pressure, okay? Because you're augmenting flow to that, you know, theoretically to the ischemic penumbra. And, and you see this because... 24 hours after the stroke, after the acute event, the blood pressure starts normalizing, suggesting that, you know, this was some kind of protective response to start with. However, we also know that hypertension has got its, its adverse outcomes in patients who've had stroke, especially those who end up having mechanical thrombectomy. And, 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 sort of, and those who receive TPA, right? And, and TPA as well. And, and the guidelines right. uh, you know, suggest that you should treat the blood pressure if it's above 185 
over 110 before you, you, you administer TPA, and then you should keep it you know, below that for at least 24 hours after giving them TPA. And if the patient presents with a blood pressure, you know, a high blood pressure, more, more than 220, you should start reducing the blood pressure at least by about 10 to 15% in that first 24-hour period. So we, we know we should be treating this. So an interesting paper that in, in, in the Journal of American Heart Association a couple of years back, which was a retrospective review, and they looked at 228 patients who had an anterior circulation large vessel occlusion. And what they found was patients who had a high maximal systolic blood pressure in the first 24 hours. This was an independent factor to, to, uh, related to worse outcome and, and a worse 90-day functional outcome. And also these I patients see. had a higher rate of hemorrhagic transformation. I mean, there were, there were these, the other studies, and another one I can think of, looked at keeping your blood pressure less than 160 over 90, and that was in this, uh, also associated with lower rates of, of three-month mortality. So, you know, looking at that, I know, uh, you know, there isn't any good clear evidence to say what's a good blood pressure, but it, it seems sort of uh, prudent to aim to keep your blood pressure less than 160 over 90. And... Uh, and especially, you know, patients who've had uh, mechanical thrombectomy. However, sorry, and, and I, I don't mean to go on, but the, the, what is really worth stressing here is this target is, you know, it's, it's not set in stone. It has to be individualized based on the, you know, factors, degree of revascularization of the patient, if they've got good collateral blood flow, if they've got the, what's the extent of the infarction post, uh, post-thrombectomy, if the patient had thrombolytics, as you mentioned earlier, and then also if they've got any pre-existing comorbidities, be they renal or cardiovascular, that's going to impact on, on a blood pressure that's, that's low or high. Good. Uh, the um, next question is going to be asked by Dr. Arun George. Hi, Dr. Reddy. So my question is, uh, when do you uh, decide to ventilate a patient in the ICU, and uh, what are the strategies and goals you set for this? The interesting question, because... Also, we know patients who've had stroke, uh, they are high risk of respiratory complications. And, and, and the cause of this could be both neurological or non-neurological. I mean, they, they will present with things like dysphagia, pneumonia, pulmonary aspiration, acute respiratory distress syndrome, or even respiratory muscle weakness resulting from the stroke. But one thing we do know, that patients who need respiratory support and airway protection, these patients have associated worse outcomes Okay. Hence, there's always sometimes reluctance amongst intensivists and colleagues of mine to to initiate intubation ventilation in these patients, especially where there's you know there's a probability of survival with meaningful quality of life is low. However, because there's a lack of good evidence, uh, the 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 decision to intubate and ventilate has to be triggered by clinical factors. Okay, and, and you know, and when I say that, I, I refer to things like a low Glasgow Coma score, uh, you know, loss of protective airway reflexes. Uh, any signs of an increase in cranial pressure, a large infarct volume, um, midline shift in CT scan, or if the patient's got hypoxic or hypercarbic respiratory failure, or, or you know, if, if, if they start developing seizures. I mean, the targets for ventilation, that's, that's difficult to, to, to explain because, I mean, that remains unclear. I mean, I guess the, the target would be to maintain normal capnia. Uh, uh, you know, keep, keep your oxygen saturations more than 94%, avoiding hypoxemia, especially in the first few hours. Uh, you know, there, there's good evidence to show the patients who are hypoxic in the first few hours, they also associated with, with, with worse outcomes. And, and, and sort of, you know, it's always been asked, should you, uh, is it of benefit for prophylactically having oxygen supplementation in patients? Well, you know, there was one large trial I can think of uh, from a couple of years back uh, where 
you know, it shows that, that there's no benefit from routine oxygen supplementation. Uh, in fact, it might be detrimental. And, and in the last Jamaican uh, Heart Association guidelines, they, you know, they're, they're quite clear to recommend that you should avoid oxygen therapy in non-hypoxic patients and only use it to treat patients who had a saturation of less than 94%. What are the concepts we need to think about in regards to maintaining cerebrovascular autoregulation in this patient population? Yeah, so, so you know the, the old concept of cerebral autoregulation in stroke patients isn't as well researched as it is in, in patients with, with traumatic brain injury. I mean, cerebral autoregulation, you know, is, is there to maintain cerebral blood flow, uh, maintain it to be constant despite fluctuations in blood pressure. And yeah, I spoke about earlier about these patients having these sort of, you know, high blood pressures when, when they present. Uh, so you, you'd sort of you know, from, from that, you presume there would be some kind of, of impact of lowering the blood pressure. You know, uh, we, we do know that in patients who have got small vessel ischemic stroke, uh, cerebral autoregulation tends to be impaired in, in both their hemispheres, and that, that's been found using transcranial Doppler. Patients with a larger terminal strokes, uh, larger ter- territorial strokes, their cerebral autoregulation tends to be impaired when the impairment is limited to, to, the, uh, to the affected hemisphere. You know, and it's also a, a, a very good predictor of secondary complications where there's cerebral edema or hemorrhagic transformation and it's associated with a worse um, outcome. So, so, you know, the, the whole thing of reducing the blood pressure of 10 to 15%, uh, there's no control data to indicate that we're increasing the risk of this patient in, in the context of cerebral autoregulation. And, you know, there has to be a subgroup of patients who have got persistent small large vessel occlusions or large infarcts where reducing the blood pressure is going to cause impaired cerebral perfusion in the non-infarcted tissue. I, I guess going forward, you know, the cerebral, uh, measuring cerebral autoregulation, that's becoming increasingly accessible, and it will be a, a sort of valuable tool in guiding hemodynamic management patients and, and obviously able to help you predict any sort of secondary complications that, that are likely to happen. Look forward to more research on that. It's, we're still in the dark about that, isn't it? No, no, definitely. So do you routinely monitor ICP in these patients? To, to answer your question and to be really honest, no, we don't. Uh, they are, I mean, sort of, sort of measuring and monitoring ICP in these patients, that, that remains controversial. Uh, you know, there, right. there were studies in the past that showed ICP monitoring is going to be useful in predicting clinical outcomes, especially those who've got these hemispheric strokes. But, and because, you know, in some studies it's correlated with clinical deterioration and, and, and CT findings. However, there are also studies, and, and the majority of studies, that show patients who have got uh, malignant MCA in Fox, for instance, the pupillary changes and uh, signs of brainstem uh, compression didn't correlate with the ICP. So you had normal ICP, but you had these changes. There aren't any randomized clinical trials looking at intracranial pressure monitoring in, in this particular group of patients, stroke patients. And, and the, limiting, the limitations of ICP monitoring, uh, you know, in predicting neurological deterioration in these patients is sort of understandable because of the distance between the site of probe insertion and the, and the site of herniation. You know, and uh, I, I guess the way to, to look at it, well, you know, the, is there value? Well, yes, there would be value in, in, in a certain group of patients, patients where, you know, patients that are comatose or they're in some kind of medically induced coma requiring ventilation. And, you know, uh, um, because in these patients, you can't do neuro- neurological examinations uh, to detect secondary brain injury, and also, you know, taking them for uh, repeated CT scans may, may be difficult if they, they're not stable. So 
there I guess ICP would be a, a, a good monitor for looking for secondary brain injury. I guess, the, the you know, to answer your question, which I don't think I've answered really well, a multimodal monitoring, uh, you know, including things like intracranial pressure, uh, brain oxygen tension, or um, uh, microdialysis, or, and, and EEG, that will be useful to understand the complete okay. physiology of the comatose stroke patient. That's a good segue into Dr. Adele's question. Dr. Reddy, on, on that topic of multimodal uh, monitoring, I'm wondering if you could uh, discuss whether you do use any specific monitors to determine brain oxygenation. No, so, so, so once again, uh, Dr. Dowd, we, we don't routinely. Uh, and, you know, uh, and, and there, there are numerous reasons why, uh, firstly, it, it would make sense to do it. It makes great sense to do it if you can sort of target and optimize your brain oxygen in, in, in these patients. But the problem would come with probe placement, and getting your probe into sort of the, you know, the, the, the sort of most accurate position where you're going to get in that sort of sweet spot of the ischemic penumbra. And, and, and that, that would be the challenge. What I was trying to explain earlier is that, you know, uh, having a measure or, or a monitor of cerebral autoregulation auto and other forms of monitoring where you could use a sort of complete structured protocolized uh, approach to managing these patients would be, would be beneficial rather than just trying to optimize one, one variable. Um, I'm going to... Talk, ask you a little bit about coagulopathy in ICU, which you know many of these patients are on anticoagulants uh, when they show up, and or they do receive anticoagulants during OR interventions. So, how do you tackle reversal of coagulopathy in the ICU? And if patients who receive antiplatelet therapy during OR interventions, do you, how do you manage those patients? Yes, yeah, so. so I, mean, so, so look, I, I, I guess to, to, to answer that question, l looking at sort of patients who had intervention, you know, we, we know that stroke administration, given in uh, aspirin, sorry, given in the first 24, 48 hours after a stroke, uh, there's really good evidence for uh, for that because it, it causes almost a 50% reduction in the rate and severity of, of recurrent strokes. So, so definitely a role for giving aspirin, and we we give it, uh, you know, and and patients who've had intervention, we tend to wait 24 hours, repeat the scan, then, give, then start on aspirin. And the question is whether there's any role for dual antiplatelet therapy. At the, at the top med, I can think there was, there was a large trial that looked, at, that looked at the Chinese population and looked at patients who had aspirin and clopidogrel. And this was started in, uh, you know, early on, I think it was uh, within 24 hours of the stroke and, and it continued for about three weeks. And these really showed a potential benefit of being on dual antiplatelets, and, 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 and you know, uh, especially looking at sort of 90, 90 day uh, stroke risk was reduced in these patients. When this was looked at at a much more larger population, international population, it once again showed that there was you know, reduced your risk of having recurrent strokes, but was associated with a higher risk of of of, uh, of major hemorrhage in about three months, if I can remember clearly, and, and maybe Dr. Dal will. will, will be able to shed more light on that. In Canada, the recommendation is for dual antiplatelet therapy, both clopidogrel and aspirin, for about uh, three weeks, uh, and thereafter they 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 uh, they de-escalate yeah, de okay. monotherapy. I, I'm not sure is that true. Uh, uh, you know what I, I I believe so, but as you say, confirming that uh, there isn't any hemorrhagic transformation and and the pressures are reasonably controlled. Yeah. I I mean so you know. Um, there's no role. There's no role for urgent anticoagulation in these patients, uh, you know, and, and that we know is not effective in preventing any neurological deterioration uh, or early stroke recurrence. So, so, so we, we, you know, that definitely isn't, isn't something to consider. Or well, there's no evidence okay. to consider it anyway. 
moving on to glucose management, you had mentioned about, you know, glucose control, which is very critical in this patient population. What range do you usually aim for? Well, once again, it's going to be a long, drawn-out answer to your question. I know. It's, like it's, it's one of those forward. things, you know, the, there are no clear answers for a lot of these things, but it's just what, you know, expert opinion for the most part, right? So, I mean, so glucose is interesting as well because, I mean, the brain is, you know, firstly it requires, it's highly dependent on, on constant and adequate supply of glucose. But mm-hmm. when, when you have a brain injury, like a stroke, it becomes sort of hypermetabolic, idea of get this hypoglycolysis. We know that hypoglycemia causes uh, functional brain failure. Uh, hyperglycemia, you know, worsens, worsens outcomes so through the intracellular acidosis, uh, worsens your brain edema, edema uh, disrupts the blood-brain barrier, uh, and patients who've been recanalized, you have a failure of that. Um, so there, there's obviously the need for us to, to, to treat sugar, but it's important where, you know, to answer your question, where exactly do you aim that? Um, I think, yes, the range is always... Uh, uh, Tough, right? Is it 140? Is it 160? Is it 180? That's what we all struggle with, and right. So you know, it's just practice. That, you know, the evidence for any particular number is not there, but we know the range. Is that right? No, that, that, that's true. I mean, so, so uh, there, there is some data coming out from the Shine study, which you know was, was looked at over a thousand patients now in the, in the, in the U.S. stroke units, uh, and they show that intensive blood, blood, blood sugar control, uh, sort of keeping it in that 80 to 130 range uh, with insulin infusions, didn't improve United Day outcome uh, compared to uh, patients who had a standard control where it was maintained less than 180 and, and using subcutaneous insulin, intermittent subcutaneous insulin. Uh, what it did show, obviously, is that, you know, patients who have hypoglycemia episodes do poorly, and that, that we, we'd expect. If you go back to the American Heart Association guidelines in 2018, you know, they, 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 they recognize the, the need to, to, to treat hyperglycemia, and, and they sort of suggest a range of 140 to 180 you know, which seems prudent. The, the one thing we do know, and, and is another sort of interesting piece of, of data that's, that's come up recently, is that patients who, um, who present with ischemic stroke and have good, uh, a good collateral blood flow at the, at the outset, and, and if those are compared to patients who have poor collateral, if the patients who had high blood sugars, okay, with good collaterals, did, did poorly. Uh, mm-hmm. So you know the, the, this is a this is interesting because it's sort of intriguing the way that there's a possibility of is this an, a good early indication of these patients with high blood sugars and good collaterals should they have intensive blood sugar management? So I don't I know think the answer. The range to that, of 140 to 180 would probably be reasonable to you know for our residents and fellows who are practicing um, anesthesiologists as well. You know, 140 to 180 would be a good range to maintain. No, I, I, I completely agree. You know, we want to keep the patient slightly sweet, but definitely avoid hypoglycemia. And then on the other hand, excessive hyperglycemia we know is, 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 is not in their best interest as well. So now we come to the last question, which, you know, we uh, mentioned at the beginning of the podcast. What are the ethical considerations associated with treatment of stroke patients in ICU? You had alluded to that at the beginning of this podcast. So it is an interesting topic that many of us struggle with. So what what do you think about that? I mean, it it, it is like you said, we, we we sort of many of us struggle with it, and, and I personally do as well. It's obvious. I mean, these patients uh, following a stroke, they've got impaired decisional capacity. They, uh, you know, the deficit uh, can can limit their ability to communicate. 
and decisions to provide invasive uh, interventions, whether it's you know decompressive craniectomy or mechanical ventilation, that, that's all based on a clinician's assessment of the likely prognosis and then balanced against some interpretation of the patient's wishes or values. Okay, so in the absence of any sort of clear advanced directive, in- interpretation of the patient's wishes, uh, you know, by the family or the clinician, that's all. That's an imp- imperfect way of doing it. And, and you know, we, we often get that wrong. And, and you know, there's, there's always, the, I, I guess, the other problem, our, our individual attitudes to, uh, to, to, to disability also vary. And that may lead to us either withholding treatment or, uh, you know, agreeing to treatment that might be excessive. And similarly with patients, their attitudes to the level of disability, that varies. Uh, some are able to appear to adapt to life changes uh, that occur after a stroke and even accept some degree of disability that previously they would deem to be unacceptable. So, you know, the important thing, I think, is shared decision-making. And, and this has to be you know, based on those likely outcomes of the therapeutic option. You know, take into account prolonged recovery times and, and the potential of post-procedure quality of care, which is really important. Absolutely. I think shared decision-making is the key word, right? Uh, I think, you know, in consultation with the uh, healthcare healthcare provi- providers, family, and the patient's wishes as best as we know. Unfortunately, sometimes we don't know what their um, advanced directives are. So that's when I think, you know, as healthcare providers, we provide the best information we can to the patient's family and make what we think is the best outcome for that particular patient. It has to be individualized, right? No, most, most definitely. And, and you know, it, it, it is really difficult for for our own sort of biases and, and personal views to to impact on this. So. Well, thank you very much. This has been very enlightening for all of us, and thank you, Dr. Reddy, for your time. Look forward to hearing this on the website and sharing with the, our residents and fellows. Thanks, everybody.